0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church, and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy talking theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking Theo, and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What do we mean by the pre-existence of Jesus, and where do we find it in the Bible? Do the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke present Jesus as just a special prophet, or something more? How do the four Gospels present a coherent view of Christ? And how does recognising an eternal Jesus help us see the miracles of the Gospel? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Simon Gavicle. Simon is Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Cambridge University. He's author of The Pre-Existent Son, Recovering the Christologies of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And our question today is, Jesus BC, do the Gospels present an eternal Jesus? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Simon Gadigal, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks for having me. Simon, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You're currently Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Cambridge University, but tell us about your background and and how you kind of took those academic steps to your current role and and I guess what your current role looks like.
1: Well, I started out actually studying classics as an undergraduate, um, which meant that I kind of could go quite easily into the new testament field without much theology training so i only did a year of of theology before starting masters and phd and, and classics was quite a good preparation uh, for that so um after my phd which was on paul i had a lectureship first in aberdeen and uh, and then moved back to cambridge about uh, 15 years ago where, where i was an undergraduate initially so
0: i've uh, come back to where i started and give us a snapshot of what academic life for you involves. You're a fellow of a college. Uh, give us a, a snapshot of what that involves.
1: It's quite varied and a lot of it is juggling lots of different balls at once. So one main part of the job is obviously doing research um, and and working on particular articles and books and you know that's basically done by sort of sitting in a room on your own and and and, and writing but a lot of it is obviously teaching uh, le- lecturing both lecturing to sort of larger groups and also doing sort of one-to-one supervisions which we still do here in Cambridge so teaching is a big part of it and and obviously there's there's the unavoidable administration of running university departments and colleges. So I'm secretary of various committees and and doing things like admissions for PhD students as well as undergraduates. So it's a very mixed bag of lots of different things. Yeah. So which um, means you're never sort of, uh, never bored.
0: Now, your research over the years has focused in a number of different areas. Uh, Paul, I know when you did your PhD, but you've explored interpreting uh, the New Testament. You looked I know, at the Atonement, but also you looked at Christology in in the Gospels. Just just give us a quick working definition of Christology and tell us a little bit about how you landed on that particular topic as an area of interest.
1: Yeah, well, Christology is, I suppose, like the um, name suggests, the study of Christ. So in particular, the question of how Christ can be both human and divine, as, as well as what the meaning of particular titles in the Gospels and, and the New Testament are like, Son of Man, Son of God, Lord. What, what do these titles mean? What do they convey about Christ? And I suppose, like, like uh, all Christians, I'm interested in Christ from a personal point of view. But I suppose in terms of what I choose for research, to do research on, because we, you know, in most university contexts, you do have a completely free choice about what you do research into, I tend to pick subjects which are close to the heart of the gospel so you you know if one if one takes for example paul's summary of the gospel in 1 corinthians 15 for what i received i I also passed on to you as a first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was uh, that he was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures you know if if that focal definition of the gospel of jesus as the Christ of Of what he did on the cross and in his resurrection and his fulfillment, if that, if that's the sort of heart of the gospel, then i I like to focus on those central issues of the most significance for Christianity. And I suppose the person of Christ who Christ is has always been controversial. You know in the early church, there were various arguments about Christ's human and divine natures and how they could be both taken seriously, or you know and obviously some heresies. On, on one side and some on the other. Just as in in modern times, there's there's extensive debate over both the sort of um, theological questions of uh, how Jesus' human nature and divine nature might be understood as, as coming together, but also the historical questions about, you know, did Jesus do this or that? Was he more like a rabbi or was he more like a wandering philosopher or was he more like a, a Jewish messiah and so on? So those are the sort of question, you know, both historical and theological questions that I've sort of
0: been particularly interested in. Today we're looking at the question particularly of the pre-existent Christ, the pre-existent son. We might think we know, but what's the pre-existence of of Jesus all about?
1: I suppose just as a brief definition of of pre-existent, there are sort of two, I suppose, two versions of pre-existence one is a sort of hard version and one is a sort of soft version so you know a sort of soft version of pre-existence is that when the angel gabriel came and visited mary and mary saw the angel gabriel that wasn't the first time that the angel gabriel had sort of come into being so the angel gabriel pre-existed his visit to mary but the angel gabriel isn't an eternal being the angel gabriel was created by god in time and so the angel Gabriel isn't eternal like God is eternal and so that's an important distinction between the kind of pre-existence that an angel has and the pre-existence that Christ has because Christ had what one might call a sort of hard form of pre-existence in that Jesus the Son of God has existed eternally not just as a creature of God. So theologians often distinguish between the things that God has made, Um, And so in that respect, angels are just like you and me, a point that's made in the book of Revelation, that we're all creatures of God and servants of God. Whereas Christ is not made, but is begotten. So just as you you might distinguish between your child and, your, and a cake you've made, you, know, you haven't really created your child, but you've begotten your child, but you've, whereas you've made a cake. You know the, the same distinction operates in, in theology that there's a big difference between what God has made in the world and on the other side, the Son of God whom God has begotten. So the fact that the father has begotten the son means that the son is eternal with the Father didn't just sort of pop along afterwards like creation did.
0: Now, this has been an area which has been subjected to quite tough questioning in the last, I guess, 200 years or so, the the pre-existence of Jesus in the the hard version that you describe. And as we look back over the last 200 years, it was kind of key texts in Paul and John that became the kind of the battleground. Can you just introduce what those key texts were and and kind of how people were questioning the idea of the pre-existence of Jesus?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So um, it actually goes further back than that, but back to the early church where one of the sort of heresies was that Jesus was a creature and was, was, was created in time. But, but especially in the last 200 years, I suppose the two key places where people have looked for the pre-existence of Christ have been, first of all, the first chapter of John. So one of the, one of the classic passages articulating the eternal nature of jesus in the beginning was the word you know the word the son of god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning so uh, articulated there is a clear statement that jesus is the son of god the logos uh, the word who is co-eternal with with the father eternal in the same way that the father is eternal and I, and there are lots of other places, you know, in Paul, for example, where Jesus is in the form of God, in the very nature of God, before his incarnation, and then he takes on the form of a servant, and and, and so on. That's Philippians 2, isn't it? That Philippians 2, and various other places in Paul, where it's not so much sort of set out in the way that it is in, in the beginning of John's Gospel, but sort of, you know, mentioned more in passing. And so I, I think in the last 200 years, there's been a tendency to regard things like John 1 and that statement about the eternal word, um, there's been a tendency to regard passages like that as sort of late theological developments that uh, arose, you know, after decades and decades of of controversy and um, debate, so that, you know, if, if Jesus' ministry was conducted around sort of AD 30, and John was written around AD 90 or 100 the conclusion that some draw is that the idea of pre-existence is something that really evolved over a long period of time as a result of sort of extensive Christian reflection and agonizing over over the nature of Jesus so I suppose one of the things I've tried to do in in my research is to make the claim that you know it's not it's not something that only came out as the result of a, a long and agonising process
0: of evolution, but was something that was there pretty much from the beginning. So let's think about that, because one of the things you've done is actually look at other texts, and in particular the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we often call the synoptic Gospels, and you've looked at them for the evidence of the pre-existent Christ, but then if they haven't been the obvious place for people to go, why is that, that they've not been treated as, obvious sources for thinking about the preexistence of Jesus.
1: Well, I think it's partly because they've been put into this sort of evolutionary scheme and the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark and Luke have often been regarded as sort of on the primitive early end of that scheme, you know, in other words, pretty much at the opposite end from John, which again is often taken as the sort of, you know, the, the final climactic development in that o- evolutionary schema. So Matthew Mark and Luke have tended to be regarded as the places where you know Jesus is described as a prophet the last prophet of Israel the eschatological prophet as people often say you know the end times prophet possibly you know if you're generous they might depict him as as the messiah and in a, in a sort of big sense of a lord over the church in Israel but you know b- basically an eschatological prophet in other words the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give a much more sort of primitive picture of Jesus by comparison with the grand theological picture that you get in, in John's Gospel. So that, that's a sort of a, a very rough sketch of how much scholarship over the last 200 years has has treated the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the one hand, and John on the other. And I suppose, I, I suppose I've tended to be sort of, you know, not very content with that a stark
0: division between Matthew, Mark and Luke on the one hand and John on the other. And I know one of the things you've done in your published work is argue that there's a series of statements in, in those Gospels where Jesus talks about, I've come in order that or in order to. And you suggested that that hints at Jesus coming from somewhere <laughs> with a prior intent, like a movement from A to B. I wonder if you could kind of speak into that and, and perhaps outline why you think this very neat separation between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and primitive on the one hand, in view of the pure existence of Jesus, and John as very advanced on the other, doesn't really hold water.
1: Yeah, well, I think, as, as you mentioned, one of the things that I, I, I explore in my study of those so-called I-have-come sayings is really to make the argument that they should be read sort of as one would naturally read them. I'm not bringing in any sort of, you know, very sophisticated, very arcane method in in understanding those those sayings. If you read a statement like Luke 12, 49, for example, where Jesus says, I have come to cast fire on the earth, you know, I would say that the straightforward reading of that statement is that Jesus has come from somewhere to somewhere in order to cast fire on the earth. And you know, that's a particularly stark example because he's casting fire on the earth. And and so it most naturally implies coming from from heaven, because those passages where Jesus says that he's come to do something, they can't really be understood as a reference to coming, you know, say from Nazareth to Capernaum or from Jerusalem to, you know, it's not just about Jesus traveling around Galilee and Judea, because, you know, all of them are summaries of Jesus' ministry. You know, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They're they're all summaries of Jesus' whole life's work. And so they're not places where Jesus is saying, oh, I've come to Capernaum this morning to preach a little sermon. Um, so, So when Jesus is summarizing his whole ministry, he's summarizing the reason why he's here so, you know, it seems to me that when Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance, for example, he's talking about coming from from elsewhere. And that's particularly strong, I think, in places like Luke 12, where there's quite a big cosmic agenda of casting fire on the earth, for example. So I think, as I say, I'm not doing anything, you know, terribly sophisticated. I'm in a way taking the text at face value. And so some of what I was doing in the book was actually more sort of batting away alternative understandings. So some, for example, have said, you know, this is the way that Messiahs talked. This is the way people talked about Messiahs in ancient Judaism. And so one of the things I tried to do, as well as sort of fleshing out those statements, was to say, well, actually there's no, no evidence for this as a kind of messianic idiom. Or there's, and there's no evidence for this as a prophetic idiom. This is something peculiar to Jesus' speech. And the only other characters that we find making statements like this are you know occasionally god but more often angels um and so so the natural analogy to these i have come sayings of jesus is actually um that we find angels saying the same kinds of things a lot of the time as well which points to their sort of
0: origin in heaven as well you mentioned earlier about the significance of the term messiah in the synoptic gospels and the way that that sort of hints some sort of scholars to say well possibly he's a little bit more than an eschatological prophet but you know not much more sort of thing but nevertheless you argue that the titles given to jesus in the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke messiah lord son of man son of god actually point more conclusively than than is often thought towards a pre-existent son tell us why that's the case
1: I think some of them do more than others. So in Mark 10:45 for example, we have the statement that the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think there uh, Jesus is evoking the language of uh, the book of Daniel, where in Daniel 7 uh, there's a vision of one like a son of man who comes on the clouds and uh, and receives honor and authority from people from every tongue, tribe and nation. And so there you've got Jesus sort of tapping into an image of a figure who has clear heavenly authority and heavenly origin. And I think the title Lord as well is one which was probably understood pretty early on as evoking, again, the heavenly authority of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is Lord over the whole cosmos, and uh, that Jesus was included within the divine identity, as some theologians put it, in his identity as, as Lord. I don't think the title Messiah would necessarily convey to, you know, those first readers, oh this is, you know, Jesus was pre-existent. And even son of god, which, you know, often has a strong description of Jesus as, you know, an eternal being begotten by the father as it as it does in sort of classic accounts of Jesus. To many readers early on, son of god was was much more varied in meaning. So Already in the, in the Old Testament, you know, Israel is called the Son of God, for example. Uh, the King of Israel could be called the Son of God. And so it, took a, it did take a bit of time for um, the understanding of Jesus being a Son of God in a literal sense to, to
0: really be understood, I think. So what is the picture of Jesus, therefore, and his pre-existence that emerges from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And how does that challenge this idea of the synoptic Gospels, those first three Gospels, as somehow primitive to the idea of a developed fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John? Give us a sense about where, where we might land.
1: I think there's a, there is a difference between what we get in John's so-called prologue, I think, in that um, in the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, which are often called the prologue, we do have some of the author's own reflection. So John has come to the conclusion, which you know, which was not a, not a new conclusion, actually, because we find it in Paul, for example, that Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, is the one through whom everything was created. Now, that's actually not something we ever hear Jesus himself saying, but it was... According to Paul and, and John, the kind of logical conclusion to be drawn from the fact that Jesus was eternal and was with the Father at creation. But as I say, it's not something that we find Jesus himself saying explicitly. But I think in both John's Gospel and in Matthew, Mark and Luke, we do we do find, you know, a lot of common ground in terms of Jesus referring to his pre incarnate life with the Father. So another place beyond the I have come sayings, for example, is where in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you like the mother hen gathers her chicks? And uh, it's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, there hasn't been a reference to Jesus visiting Jerusalem yet, except in the temptation narrative. And so the picture there, I think, is that Jesus has been active during the history of Israel, the Son of God has been active calling Israel back to himself. And so I, th- I think in the synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't have an account yet of Jesus as an eternal being, at least not, not an explicit articulation of that. Whereas in John's Gospel, especially in the prologue, we do have the statement of Jesus as an eternal being in that, you know, already in that first verse. And it also comes out very occasionally in Jesus' teaching in John's gospel as well. So, for example, when Jesus says in John's gospel, Before Abraham was, I am, the use of that I am there is contrasting with the fact that, you know, Abraham came into being at one point and passed away at another point, whereas Jesus just eternally is. I think that's one snapshot from Jesus' own teaching where we do have. Um, A statement of, of eternity, sort of pre existence in a
0: hard sense that I mentioned earlier. You mentioned earlier that you find yourself attracted to areas of research which matter for the gospel. So, as you reflected on this piece of research, on the pre existence, on the eternal nature of Jesus, talk us through why that matters for you and how it might affect our worship, our prayer, our mission and sharing of the gospel.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose there's a sort of, there's the wider question first of the proposed distinction between Matthew, Mark and Luke on the one hand, and John in, in scholarship that is very prevalent. So I think one of the points that I was trying to make is that this is one of the core issues where people often see a sharp distinction between John and the other Gospels. And I think it's important for the church to to have a sort of unified sense of who Jesus is rather than to sort of have a slightly schizophrenic understanding of Jesus where we switch between, you know, the synoptic gospels when we're lecturing and John's gospel when we're in church or something like that. So, So I think it's very important to hold the four gospels together and, you know, to resist the temptation either of just squashing them into one or from holding them sort of too far apart at the uh, at the other extreme. So that, that that I suppose is the sort of larger larger question. And on on the question of pre-existence specifically which I think is as I say in all in all four gospels. I think it's very important that we understand clearly that Jesus is not part of the created order simply. That he's not just you know sometimes we we get this um overemphasis on the fact that you know jesus was in the muck of life with the rest of us and that's obviously absolutely true but it's also vital for the church to to remember that jesus is eternally the son of god and that we don't just sort of pray to another creature we don't just worship another creature which would be idolatry but we actually we pray in the name of christ and worship him who is the eternal son of god so so uh, i think that that's uh, a couple of examples of why i think it's important
0: anyway (laughs) And if I had to push you on, why is that part of the good news in our world today? Where might you suggest we look?
1: Well, I suppose the miracle of the gospel is sort of multifold, isn't it? So so first of all, there's the miracle that God became a baby. The eternal son of God became a baby, a human being like us. That's the first miracle. And um, the sort of last couple of miracles (laughs) of the gospel are, are that the sins that we had committed, the sinful nature that we have, was on the cross taken by Jesus, and again, miraculously, our sins were reckoned to Him. You know, so the normal pattern in the in the Old Testament is that we died for our sins. You know, one king, for example, said King Zimri died for his own sins. But the, the, the miracle again, the miracle of the cross, is that Christ died for our. Sins, as Paul and the other New Testament writers put it, and then that um, Christ was raised to life. So I think that the preexistence reminds us that there is this miracle of Christ entering into our world
0: to redeem us on Good Friday and at Easter. You spoke earlier about researching as a Christian and this mattering for you. I wonder if how in the course of writing uh, this book. The significance of the pre-existence of Jesus, the eternal Jesus, has stayed with you and shaped your own faith, ministry and discipleship with the Lord?
1: Well, I think in many ways, I'd refer the Honourable Gentleman to the answer I gave a moment ago, (laughs) that the the reminder of Jesus' divine identity is really crucial and something that we need to hold with us. And I, I suppose in a lot of the time as I read scholarship, there's a strong emphasis on, you know, in, in commentaries on the gospels that Jesus was a human being and that we make judgments about what Jesus could and couldn't have done on the basis of what human beings can and can't do. And so the reminder of Jesus' eternity, the Son of God's eternity, is is something that's got to remain in our minds that we sort of naturally can drift into forgetting. So I think that's something that research on this topic has sort of constantly reminded me of.
0: And it's something you've reminded us of today really well indeed. Thanks so much for appearing on Talking Theology, Simon Gathical.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.